Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. Many of you last week were a part of our end times teaching. It was an awesome, powerful time where God moved. I'm telling you, we've never had in all of our live streams where I said, type one if you're getting saved tonight or rededicating. Over a thousand people said that they're coming to Christ, that they're serving God, that they want to get relit on fire because something happens in you when you talk about the end times. Something happens when you talk about the rapture and the tribulation. There is a certain level of urgency. And tonight we're going to be talking about end time events. And I hope and I'm praying that these messages produce a sense of urgency on the inside of you people said Isaiah I was up at night I couldn't sleep because the message that you preach that is my goal my goal is that these messages these Bible messages would produce such an urgency in you that they would change the way you think they would change the way you live and ultimately after hearing the word tonight you wouldn't live your life the same you wouldn't live in the shallow end of casual Christianity but you'll say Lord I want to go to the next level with you I want to know you I don't want to live my life idle. I want to say yes to your calling. This has to produce an urgency so that when the Lord returns, that we are not found sleeping, that we are not like the foolish virgins, that although they were virgins, although they they were set apart and set aside like many of you to God, when the master returned, they were unprepared and they were found sleeping. And I don't know about you, come on, help me in the chat, but I don't want to be found sleeping when the master returns. I want to be wide awake. I want to be sober in the spirit. We need to break out of the spiritual drunkenness that has come upon the church that says Jesus is not coming back. And this is what the mockers say and the scoffers say. But I came to preach to somebody that there is a man coming back for his church, coming back for his bride that is going to rescue us from the days of head. So is the terror that we're preaching about, is it real? Absolutely. People are telling me they're terrified and I'm I'm also terrified. Guys, when I preach on the tribulation I am terrified in the best way possible because remember Paul said knowing the terror of the Lord I persuade men so Paul was saying if you want to know my motivation for preaching if you want to know my motivation for sharing everything I'm sharing with you guys for going from land to sea getting stoned getting shipwrecked getting beat he said the terror of the Lord in other words I know how serious God is how powerful God is that this is not a game that this is not a joke that's why Jesus said fear the father who could destroy both body and soul in hell. So we need a healthy fear of the Lord for whatever reason in the average church, we don't preach the fear of the Lord. We don't preach messages that induce the fear of the Lord. And so we need the fear of the Lord that produces right living, that leads me to living for Christ. As I'm talking about the antichrist, it's all because I wanna be led more into Christ because I want Christ to be my rest. I want Christ to be my Sabbath. I want Christ to be my refuge. So everything we're teaching with deliverance with end times with tribulation with what I'm going to share tonight about the Antichrist and about the Armageddon and the, and the final battle it's all to bring you into closer relationship it's healthy for you to understand that your time is limited that you don't have a thousand days you don't have a thousand years you don't have tomorrow only a fool is promised tomorrow but now is the day of salvation it's healthy for you to understand that Jesus can come back at any second it's healthy to have a biblical worldview or a biblical view of end time events. So you have to understand at any moment, and I want, I want you to keep this every day for the rest of your life in the forefront of your mind, any second, 
the Lord can come back for his church. Now, I'm not talking about the seven-year tribulation and the coming of the Lord. I'm talking about when the Lord comes in the twinkling of an eye and raptures his bride. Now, you might be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. If you don't know, I'm pre-trib, okay? I shared five or six very compelling reasons why I'm pre-trib and I'll share maybe one or two more tonight, but it doesn't matter. It's not a salvation issue. If you're mid-trip, post-trip, we could still be friends, but I want you to know that it's a real thing, a real reality, and we're going to see, and we are seeing things transpire right now. Here's what you need to realize. There's things happening right now on the earth that have never happened in human history. So don't sit here and tell me, oh, well, they've been saying this is going to come. They've been saying we're in the day of the Lord. If there's ever been a time to be spiritually sober, if there's ever been a time to be spiritually vigilant, it's now. If there's ever been a time to be awake, it's now. You say, Isaiah, well, how do I know if I'm spiritually drunk? When you're spiritually drunk, you don't know the time that you live in. Just like when you're in the, drunk in the natural and you say, I don't even know what time it is. How long have I been here? Where am I? And you black out there's so many of you that are blacked out in the spirit you don't know what time it is you have no spiritual vision you have no spiritual direction for your life and i believe the lord is going to sober you up in jesus name and the same way in the world how did you get sober what did they tell you now listen i i haven't drank in 10 years i used to drink almost every day before i got saved and all all i knew how to do to sober up was eat the bread eat the bread everyone just drink some milk eat the bread well how many people know that the word of god is milk and bread the bread of life sobers you up spiritually and God is wanting to sober you up so that your head would not be in the sand so that you would not be ignorant now you might just want to click off this video and say oh, this is not relevant doesn't apply to me and you want to keep living your life as if you have a hundred years see but if you read the signs and understand the signs of the times you will realize that you don't have a hundred years to play church you don't have another five years to play church because we are living in the end days we're living in the last days not the end times i'll share this later but the last days and god is waking you up and let me speak prophetically because i feel the fire so strong tonight god is waking you up right now for a purpose if you are in this broadcast come on i feel the fear of god and God has woke you up and God has anointed you and God has shooken you up and you stumbled on the broadcast. You say, Isaiah, I just got saved or maybe you've been in church your whole life and you say, I just got lit on fire or maybe you're one of the pastors in the broadcast that say, I just got lit on fire again for God. I lost my passion, lost my fire. I want you to know that God has woke you up for such a time as this. Now, if you're in the broadcast and you're still drunk spiritually and you're still sleeping and your life is not turned over to Jesus Christ and the Lordship and you've not not allowed the Holy Spirit to do a regenerative work in you, then friend, you are in danger right now. Now, let me talk to some of you young people that say, I just want to party it up. I just want to TikTok it up and live my life as much as I can. And then when I'm 30, I'll serve God. Friend, all of you young people, you don't have till you're 30. The days are short. The days are numbered. Now is the time. And I want to prophesy over some young people that God is waking you up so that you can wake up your generation. God is anointing you so that you can raise up a generation so you can be the trumpet that sounds, that you can sound the alarm. Because listen, the reason you, I've already told you guys we have all the lights and all the cool stuff is because we want to reach the younger generation, but there's going to come a time where I am not as effective in reaching the young generation. And there's some of you that are 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 5, 6, 7, 8 in the chat. And God wants to use you in your gen. Well, I'm too young. Don't say you're too young, Jeremiah. Stop saying you're too young because the Bible says before you were in your mother's womb, 
God had already called you to be a prophet. So God says, I know you and you're not too young to do it. I've parents say, well, my kid's only 12. They're too young to cast out demons. And in my mind, I'm going like, if they're 12 and they're too young to cast out demons, yet you let them kill people on video games, shoot people on video games. I mean, this is how twisted we are. They're not too young. They don't have a junior Holy Ghost. Come on, let's break 3000. We're at 2,500. They don't have a junior Holy Ghost. They have the same spirit that raised Christ. So I want you to know it's no accident that you stumbled onto our channel. It's no accident you had a dream of Jesus appearing to you saying he's coming back. Now, I don't know if you know this, there is a, I would call it a phenomenon going on right now where many people in the last several months have had dreams of Jesus appearing saying he's coming back soon. In fact, in the last week, I've heard four or five people message me and stories of people saying, I had a dream of Jesus and Jesus said he's coming back. Now, you tell me if people all over the world are having dreams of Jesus, Jesus is appearing to them saying, I'm coming back soon. Do you think it's just a coincidence? And these are not church people, y'all. These are rappers. These are celebrities. These are people that are on drugs, people that are addicted to alcohol, people that are religious. And the Lord is visiting people all over the world to bring them to repentance because we truly are living in the last days. Jesus truly is coming back. It's brought them to repentance. And this is what it's all about. It's bringing people to repentance, that we would repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ. If you get freaked out listening to end time events, listening to the antichrist, listening to the tribulation, it should produce a healthy fear for you to repent and to put your faith in Christ. And you gotta understand that's why everything we teach is intentional to point people to Christ, to put your faith in Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the judgment of salvation, where we get decided whether we go to heaven or hell is based on the faith you put in Christ. So the book of Revelation, again, is what we're going to be talking about. But I wanna emphasize something as we start talking about it. When we talk about the book of Revelation, this is not the revelation of the Antichrist. This is not the revelation of end time events. The book of Revelation, write this down, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about knowing him. It's all about getting closer to him. And I am on a lifelong pursuit to getting to know the person of Jesus Christ. I want to know him like I've never known him. I want to encounter him like I've never encountered him. I'm 10 years into this, friend, and I am more in love with God right now than I've ever been. And God is looking for some people that would fall in love with him, looking for some people that would serve him, that would say, Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will go wherever you want me to go. My life Life is not my own. And some of you tonight in the chat, your problem is this. You still think your life belongs to you. And God says, your life does not belong to you. Your life is not your own, but I purchased you with royal blood and your life is mine, that I've given you life so that you can give your life back to me. And so I'm telling you right now, I wanna know God. Everything I talk about tonight is getting to know God better. My goal in these teachings I've been doing on the end times is to make the end time events simple enough for normal Christians to understand. So we're not gonna go so deep that you fall asleep, so complicated that you can't put it, apply it to your life, so deep that you need scuba gear. That is not my goal. That is not what I want these, these sessions to be that we've been doing for the last week and then probably next week. One of the reasons why so many of us are ignorant to end time events or we don't like end time teaching is because the teachers make it beyond grasp or beyond the grasp of normal Christians to understand or comprehend. So you gotta pray for me because by the grace of God, I'm gonna do my best, preach it the best I can for it to make sense, okay? And how you interpret end time events, these are not, again, salvation issues. You are not saved based on whether you believe in pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. You are saved based upon putting your faith in Jesus Christ, having relationship with him, turning from your sins, 
and being born again and following Jesus. So don't think like, oh, if I'm, if you're a preacher, if you're not saved and you're an enemy, that's not how it works, guys. Our, our salvation is based on the faith we put and the work that Jesus did on the cross and the fact that we put in faith and we believe that Christ died for our sins and we accept his finished work on the cross. So don't get all tied up. Don't get all angry. And for some of you that are like, I'm already set in my ways. I want you to look at scripture, because again, I'm going to give you over 50, and I want you to reconsider. And I'm telling you, if you'll actually take it serious and write these things down and take the word of God serious, you'll realize you might not be right as you thought you were. So when it comes to last days, we have to remember a key thing to the timing of the last days. It's not just one sign that's going to happen that Jesus talked about, but it's going to be a collection of signs. So what marks the last days, again, the end times and last days are separate. What marks marks the last days is not one thing is not a war happening is not a plague happening is not a false messiah happening is not a rumor of war is not the love of many but Jesus says here's the key to the last days to knowing to being sure that you're living in the last days the way you know is the collection of signs it's a divergence of signs so it's not just one thing breaking out but it's a pandemic it's rumors of war it's political powers being shifted it's all these other signs earthquakes famines these all uh, uh, together culminating or how we know we're living in the last days. Now, throughout history, there's been one sign or two signs, but right now, according to what Jesus said in Luke 21, we are seeing every sign take place. And Jesus said in Luke 21, 28, when you see all these things begin to happen, then you know, look up, your salvation is near. So Jesus said it's not one or another, but when you see a culmination of events happening, so remember, it's all these things happening at the same time, then you need to understand that these your salvation is near. So it's the collection of events. Now the end times, and this is important as we go into this tonight, and the last days are different. The last days are the days leading up to the rapture and then the tribulation, which I talked about last week. The seven year period of the tribulation biblically is considered the end times. So the last days are what we're in now, which lead up to the rapture, then sparks the tribulation. The seven year period of tribulation is the end times. So we're gonna be discussing tonight end time events, but I believe, now if you wanna know, I believe we're living in the last days. First John 2.18 says, dear children, listen to what John says, dear children, the last hour is here. You've heard the Antichrist is coming and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. So here's what John is saying. 2,000 years ago, listen to me closely tonight, guys. 2,000 years ago, John says, we are in the last hour of human history. The last hour. So could it be now, 2,000 years later, that we are in the final moments? Now we know the Bible says that one day is as a thousand and a thousand is as one day. So God's timing is much different than our timing. But if John was saying, in your Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, remember John being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying that the last hour is here. Now here's what John says. The Antichrist is coming, an actual literal person. Later we'll talk all about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is coming, but you have to realize many Antichrist, lowercase though, have already appeared. And that's because there's a spirit of the Antichrist, I'll talk to you about later, that is already alive in the earth. Daniel 12, one says, at that time, Michael, the archangel, who stands guard over your nation will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish 
greater than any since nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people whose name is written in the book will be rescued. Okay, again, this is another sign that we will be rescued from the tribulation because Daniel 12, 1, Daniel is prophesying that there's going to be a time that is going to be the worst time in existence that the nations or the world has never seen. But anyone that has their name written in the book or believers will be rescued from this time. But you have to understand uh, Daniel is talking about the end times, the tribulation. So the end times will be the most terrible time in history. Now, how do we know? Now, I know there's many of you that wrote me, say, Isaiah, we're already in the tribulation. We're already in the end times, not the last days. First of all, for the end times, the tribulation to even start, according to Daniel, there has to be a peace treaty signed with Israel. Second of all, when we're in the end times, the seven years of tribulation, which praise the Lord, I won't be there because I'm going to be serving God and he's going to rapture me if we are that generation. But you have to understand, no one's going to be surprised or like, I wonder if we're in the end times. So if you think we're in the tribulation, go listen to my video last week or go read the book of Revelation. Look at the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and you're going to know that we are not in the tribulation. There's no way you can try to connect what's happening in our world today with what's going on in the tribulations. And again, please understand tonight, I'm giving you Bible verses. I'm not giving you an opinion. I'm not giving you some conspiracy theory YouTube channel that you're addicted to. I'm giving you Bible verses because I could, I could want the tribulation to have started or I could want to believe a certain public figure is the Antichrist, but I have to look to Scripture and I have to understand that Scripture interprets Scripture, that the Bible makes it clear what the tribulation will be like. Daniel tells of a seven-year period, but it also shows us throughout the tribulation the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls that are going to be poured out. So you're not going to be living in the end times like, I wonder if it's the end times. Now, the only way you're going to be is if you don't read the Bible. And the only way that you'll believe, again, we could still be friends if you don't agree with this that we're in the tribulation now is that you don't read the bible because here's what's going to happen when you open up your bible and you turn off conspiracy theory youtube channels you're going to realize the signs of the tribulation are not happening right now they're just not happening right now so you have to understand we're in the last days right now according to scripture but we're not in the tribulation or the end times this will be the most terrible time in human history when i say terrible it's an understatement you can watch the last week's video and everyone's going to know the time now here's the question many of you ask I want to answer tonight is what is the purpose behind the tribulation like why is God pouring out his wrath why is there fire falling from heaven boils on people locusts for five months torturing people 200 million soldiers that are going to kill half the earth why is it if God is loving and God is just why is this possible because you have to understand that the seven-year period of absolute terror and chaos is not just a time of random coincidence it's a time where God has a purpose and a plan and is God loving absolutely but God is also just so the justice of God and the wrath of God is going to be poured out and there's two major reasons why God is going to allow and be the cause of the tribulation now remember again when the the wrath is being poured out the bowls are being poured out this is very very important the trumpets are sounding and the uh, tr uh, judgments are happening the seal judgments where people are getting killed all that stuff's happening this is God causing these judgments so don't think it's the Antichrist or the devil that's killing everybody and causing these things the Antichrist will kill a lot of people but understand that this is God allowing these things and the number one main reason is this is the time of judgment so the tribulation the seven years of chaos is time for God to judge the earth the Bible calls the tribulation and Zephaniah 115 the day of wrath 
Isaiah 2.12 calls it the day of reckoning. Revelation 14.7 calls it the hour of judgment. And the bottom line is sin of the world demands a response from God by nature. The Bible talks about that whatever you reap, whatever you sow, you will reap that the justice of God cannot be mocked. So if you do something sinful, if you're not under the blood of Jesus, you've not repented, you come under by default the judgment of God and God will have his way. Now, over and over through scripture, you're gonna see the people of God looking at the carnality, the sinfulness, abortion, murder, all that, and saying, Lord, why is it the wicked get away with this and you do nothing? So what happens is because the wicked, we think are getting away with sin and murder and everything they're doing, I have to be careful what I say because I'll get flagged here, but all the darkness, we look at that right now, right? And we say, God, how can you allow abortion? How can you allow murder? How can you allow? But you think that they're just getting away with it. But what you have to understand is there is going to come a time of judgment. The tribulation is God judging the earth. Proverbs eleven twenty one says God is just and he can't let sin go unpunished. Again, I'm paraphrasing all these for the sake of time. So the, and the Bible also says God is slow to anger, but his power is great and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. That's Nahum 1.3. So the guilty will never go away unpunished. Now Jesus came to take on the wrath of God. Understand that you deserved the entire brunt of the wrath of God, separation from the Father, eternity in hell. That's what you deserve. We've all fallen short. Jesus took on the wrath of God so that we didn't have to take it. Another reason why I can't, I just can't get into mid-trib because I can't imagine Jesus taking on the wrath of God and then me going through another period of the wrath of God through the tribulation. Jesus took on the penalty. It also says that God has set a day for judging the world. That's in Acts 17, 31. That's God setting apart a day for judging the world. Eventually the people of the world are going to pay a price for the sin. And the tribulation is the time. I know you don't like this because you have a foo-foo rainbow banner Jesus but the tribulation is the time that God has set aside to judge the world now many of you think that the, that's harsh of God and you don't understand truly how wicked the world is the Bible says in Proverbs 16 2 everyone is justified in his own eyes but Proverbs 21 2 says but God sees the heart so the Bible also says in Romans 3 10 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and in Ephesians 1 7 it's only by the blood of Jesus you can be forgiven so you need to understand only by the blood of Jesus we can be forgiven of our sins and John 3 18 talks about that anyone who rejects Jesus remains under the judgment of God so everybody has this theory that now now that we're in the New Testament, God is no longer judging people. People no longer come under the judgment of God. That's wrong. John 3, 18 tells us if you don't accept Jesus, if you don't remain in Jesus, you are already under the judgment of God. So the judgment of God is not gone away, but if we accept Jesus, we don't come under judgment. So what happens, Isaiah, to the 5 billion people or the 6 billion people, I don't know how many people there will be when tribulation starts, that haven't accepted Christ? They, by default, will come under the judgment of God. And if they're alive in this period, they will have to withstand the full brunt of the wrath of God. But the Bible says in Romans 8.1, and I've already given you 10 verses and we're in the first few minutes. There is no judgment for those that remain in Christ. There's no condemnation also for those that are in Christ. So if you are a believer, now here's what I don't understand. I know there's a lot of you that were arguing with me and praise the Lord. It's okay. I, I, you can argue all that stuff. I don't mind that because I want you to be a free thinker. I don't want you to just think because Isaiah Saldivar told you, but it's like you are, you're, you so want to be in the tribulation. I don't understand this. Like God has saved you from wrath. He's given you his only son. And you're so convinced and angry that I said pre-trib. Like people are like, we're not pre-trib, we're mid-trib and post-trib. I'm like, listen, y'all, 
If you want to be here during the tribulation, pray that God would leave you here, but I'm trying to take the first ticket out. I am not trying to live through the time of tribulation if I don't have to. And you might say, well, how will people get saved? I'm about to show you how people are going to get saved in the tribulation. But you got to realize, I don't know why you want to go through suffering. Like, I don't understand why the church people are like, I want to go through the tribulation. I want to be under the wrath of God as if like Jesus, what he did wasn't enough. So will there be a twinkling of an eye, Jesus taking us and Jesus rapturing us? According to scripture and the timeline of scripture, absolutely, I believe it. I gave seven, six reasons why you can go watch the video later, but you need to understand the end times generation are going to remain under the judgment of God. They're going to reject Jesus. And here's what Revelation 16, 9 says. They will even curse God. Guys, here's the crazy part. After the tribulation, after every seal, every trumpet, every bowl, they're still going to reject Jesus. Paul says that they're only going to love money themselves, be boastful, be proud, be disobedient, be ungrateful be undisciplined be unloving be unforgiving and all these other things in second timothy chapter 3 he talks about these people that are angry they're bitter and revelation 16 shows us that even after everything now some of you are like if my family member that's stubborn saw a miracle they'd get saved if my family member that's stubborn saw deliverance they'd get saved but i want you to understand these people are going to see seven years of tribulation Half the world's going to die, and they're still, the Bible says at the end of Revelation, are going to curse and mock God. So the end time generation, and I hate to say it, but it's the truth, are going to deserve every bit of God's wrath. And history also shows us that God's wrath is certain. It's not a maybe. In Noah's day, what happened? God destroyed the earth with a flood. And what was God's reason? Genesis 6, 11, the earth was filled with violence. And the Bible says in Genesis 6, 5, that their thoughts were continuously evil. So if you're like, how could God kill all these people? God did it in the flood. So God judged the world and destroyed everyone in the world except for Noah and his family because God was judging unrighteousness. Now, since the flood, you say, well, that was before the flood, God promised. Now, God promised not to flood the earth, but God did not promise not to judge the earth because after the flood Genesis 19 God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah also in Jeremiah 32 God used Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment on Israel for worshiping false god and idols in Daniel 5 he brought judgment on King Belshazzar of Babylon and he'll bring judgment on the end time generation so don't think that God is not going to bring judgment the tribulation is a time of God's judgment and even though now listen to me closely okay this is not all down tonight even though God is pouring out his wrath for seven years his primary purpose write this down is not to destroy his primary purpose is to save people let me say that again even though god for seven years is pouring out the worst wrath that the earth will ever see it's not to destroy but to save the tribulation will have one of two impacts there will only be one of two things are going to happen either people are going to harden their hearts during the tribulation that's going to be one crowd or people are going to turn for to god for mercy so the react the first the response is God's judgment becomes punishment. The second response is God's judgment becomes a blessing. Think about this. The judgment of God in the tribulation actually becomes the blessing of God because of the judgment people are going to turn to God to escape the wrath to come and the Bible says in Isaiah 26 9 when the people of the earth experience judgment the world will learn righteousness think about that let me say that again when the people of the earth experience judgment the world learns righteousness Isaiah 26 9 so understand that as God judges the earth come on we just broke 3,000 share the broadcast as God judges the earth, he brings people into salvation and righteousness. So you have to decide whether you're going to come under the judgment of God or you're going to turn to God. And again, 
Why is it that we have to go through all of this, learn all this before we're willing to submit to God? So reason number one is the tribulation is for the judgment of God. Reason number two is the tribulation is a time for the lost to be saved. There, oh, I feel the Holy Ghost fire. There is going to be a salvation explosion during the tribulation. Because remember, God wants everyone to be saved. According to John 6, 39, he does not want a single person. I'm reading the chat right now. He doesn't want a single person to be lost. Remember what Peter said. He said, Jesus is not being slow and returning as some people think. He's being patient for our sake because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but wants everyone to repent that's second peter 3 9 so you have to understand that during the tribulation there will be the greatest revival of human history where i believe over i believe over a billion souls are going to be saved so is this terrible time absolutely is there torment and torture and death and chaos yes but it'll be the greatest time of revival ever in human history this is going to be now all the shocking events of the locust of the 200 person 200 million person army of the blood raining of every animal in the sea dying of the rivers turning to blood the great earthquake the sun dying out the stars falling from the sky everything i described last week is exactly what the world's going to need to awaken from their slumber god is going to use the tribulation listen to me closely to grab the attention of the world now how do you know this because everybody knows that when tragedy strikes people turn to god look at the people of nineveh job warned them gets up in front of nineveh and says god is going to destroy the city god is going to judge nineveh and what happens the bible says in jonah 3 5 that the people turn from their evil ways and instead of pouring out judgment god released unprecedented revival what caused the people to turn from their sin in Nineveh and turn to God? It was the impending doom. It was the impending judgment. Now, there's many of you that got saved because you learned about the judgment of God. People wrote me, I got saved last week, learning about the judgment of God. Now, how could learning about the judgment of God get someone saved? Because to escape judgment, we cling onto the cross, which is our only escape. There's no other life raft, life raft, there's no other lifeboat, and there's no other escape of the judgment of God but through turning to Jesus. Because remember, according to Deuteronomy 8.10, when times are good, people forget God. And you know this, when everything's going good, you don't remember God. We don't need God. But the moment we experience trial, the moment we experience trouble, we seek God out. When everything gets crumbled, when you're shaken, every time something tra tragic happens, everyone wants to turn to god whether it's a car accident whether it's a sickness whether you think you might be having a baby with your girlfriend come on somebody help me and you're like lord if you deliver me from this i'll serve you guys i lost track when i was an atheist i didn't believe in god which i think i was really agnostic but i just thought it was cool to be an atheist when i was like there's no god god's not real god doesn't care about me i cannot count how many times i was in a bad time in my life or something happened or i thought my girlfriend might be pregnant or i was gonna get in a car accident or something traumatic happened and i would say lord if you do this, I'll never this again. I'll never this again. I'll serve you. I'll serve you. Every time something bad would happen, I'd be like, Lord, I'll serve you. I'll follow you. I'll do anything because troubling times have a way of turning us to God. So remember, during the tribulation, many will turn to God. Remember, Jesus told the parable about the two men. He said, one man built his house on solid rock. The other man built his house on shifting sand. When the storm came, the house on solid rock stood firm, but the house on shifting sand came crashing down. 
the tribulation is going to be a massive storm where everyone who lives through it that put their money in trust and people and idols and false gods are going to realize they live their lives on sand so it's going to be again the greatest time of revival the earth has ever seen the bible says in revelation 7 9 a vast crowd of people too num numerous to count from every people, language, and nation will commit themselves to Jesus. There's going to be a vast crowd of people that got saved during the tribulation. Again, I'm pre-trib, so I don't believe the church will be here. Now, let me say something very, very clear. If you read the book of Revelation, and you're not pre-trib, you're mid-trib or post-trib, there's one very interesting thing. You're going to see the church of Jesus Christ in Revelation 2, Revelation 3. After the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, you're not going to see the church throughout revelation any longer you're going to see believers because someone wrote me and said well how is there believers if we get raptured those are believers that got saved after the rapture during the tribulation listen to me friend the moment everyone disappears in the rapture the moment we're taken up to meet with him in the air how many people do you think are going to cry out to god how many millions of people are you going to think are going to cry out to say, Lord, save me, deliver me? Because remember, these people grew up in church. They knew the stories of the rapture and they're going to get saved. I could imagine, and let me just guess, hundreds, I, I would just guess, hundreds of millions right after the rapture are going to get saved. I, I believe this because they're going to say, all these people got taken. The Bible's true. God is real. We want to serve you. And they're going to repent and they're going to turn to God. So that's why you're going to see Christians in the tribulation. But you're not going to see, again, this is, I'm just giving you the Bible. If you don't like it, just send me a verse. You're not going to see in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, the seven churches in the tribulation. You do not see the church of Thyatira. You do not see the church of Ephesus. You don't see any churches or references to God's church because they've already been taken. The Holy Spirit has been moved aside so that the Antichrist can rise up in power. Remember when Jesus, when the disciples asked Jesus, what is the sign of your return? Matthew 24, 14. He says, and the good news will be preached to the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. So think about this. Now I want you to think about, because I've never really thought about this until I was studying Matthew 24. Jesus is telling the disciples, this is going to be the sign of my return everyone's going to hear the gospel the entire world now this is not the rapture this is the the coming of the lord which we'll talk about probably next week where jesus comes back establishes a throne reigns for a thousand years on the earth and then re-lets out satan to tempt the world okay jesus is saying when i come back there the entire world is going to have have heard the gospel then i'll come back that a lot of that hearing the gospel is going to be through the tribulation now think about this jesus is a carpenter turned preacher he wasn't rich he didn't have political power. He wasn't a hero to society. He's living during a time of no internet, no TV, no radio. And he's telling the disciples there, oh, I feel the fire of God. There is going to come a time where every single person in the world is going to hear this message. And the disciples are going, how is that possible? You're a carpenter turned preacher. We don't even honestly know why we're following you. And you're telling us one day the entire world is going to hear the gospel. He was talking about a message that was so powerful, so life changing, so explosive that this message was going to be reached in the entire world someday. Every person would hear the gospel. Friend and I long for the day where every single ear has heard the gospel. But understand the disciples did not know how big the world was much of the world was not discovered but think about this from those 12 men that jesus preached and trained 
There was an estimated, in 2015, there was a, a, a consensus done on a survey. Okay, I don't know how accurate it is, but this is what they said. In 2015, there was an estimated 2.3 billion Christians worldwide, okay? Maybe that number's off. Let's just say 2 billion. From 12 people to an estimated 2.3 billion Christians in 2,000 years, that is an incredible thing that right now on the earth, there's two plus billion people that label themselves as Christians. And this is a testament to Jesus saying that everyone's going to hear the gospel. Remember, the disciples didn't know how big the world is. They just knew. Now, in the book of Acts, we see a gospel explosion, and the disciples begin to spread the message of Jesus. Now, this is interesting. Thousands of years later, it's May 10th of 2021, and right now, think about this, 2,000 years later, I'm on this broadcast spreading the message of Jesus Christ to 3178 of you, and a million people a week are hearing the gospel through our broadcast. This is now 2,000 years later. We're still getting the message out to the four corners of the earth. And there's people tonight that have never heard the gospel that are going are hearing the gospel for the first time. That is a testimony to the power of God, to the fact that Jesus Christ, everything he said was true. He's not a man that he should lie. He's just, and what he said was right. So the tribulation is going to be the greatest time of revival in history. Nothing ever like this is ever going to happen or happen since. There's going to be an explosion of signs and wonders and miracles. Now, during the tribulation, there's going to be 144,000 witnesses, according to Revelation 7, 4, 12,000 from each tribe. God is going to raise up that are going to preach the gospel through the tribulation. So you say, well, how are people going to get uh, the gospel if the church is raptured? There's going to be 144,000 with a seal. God is going to mark them with a seal, and they are going to be Jewish evangelists that are going to preach the gospel. Now, do we know who they are? Do we know if they're alive? I don't know, and I'm not going to get, again, tonight, I'm not going to get all deep and crazy and confuse you. This is, how could we make this relevant to our life today? But just know there's going to be over 100,000, 144 to be exact, thousand witnesses, the Bible says, that are going to be sharing the gospel. Now, these 144,000 evangelists are not going to be by themselves. These are also going to have two witnesses with them also preaching. And write this down, Revelation 14, 6, the Bible says, and I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people, those who belong to the world, to every nation, language, tribe, and people. So John is seeing in Revelation 14, guys, we're already in the tribulation. John is seeing an angel preaching the gospel. He said, I saw an angel flying through the sky. Think about this. The, oh, I, I get chills, guys. I got so I get chills talking about this. An angel is flying through the sky, John says, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to the world. Who are the people he's proclaiming to? The unsaved people. Revelation 14, 6. They belong to this world. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And now angels are flying around broadcasting the gospel message. I'm telling you, I felt the Holy Ghost. People are going to get saved in the tribulation. It'll be an amazing time. It'll be an amazing time. Will it be terror and chaos? Yes, but there'll be a revival happening during the tribulation. Okay, not only will it be 144,000, there will be the angels preaching. There's also going to be two witnesses, and I'm giving you reasons why if the church goes, how are people going to get saved? These two witnesses, the Bible says, are going to have supernatural power to perform miraculous signs. They're going to have supernatural power. They're not going to have natural power. These are going to be two supernatural witnesses. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us their names. Some believe it's Elijah and Enoch because Elijah and Enoch are the 
the two people in the Bible that never died. Others believe it's Elijah and Moses, because remember, Elijah and Moses appeared on the Mount Transfiguration. But remember, this is just theory and study. It's not scripture. The Bible doesn't say who they are, but the Bible does describe their power. Listen to what the Bible says. It says the two witnesses are going to perform miracles similar to Elijah and Moses. They're going to have the power to shut the sky so no rain will fall. Okay. And they, as they prophesied, and that's Revelation 11:6. Now remember, Elijah, and this is why people believe it could be Elijah or Moses. Elijah had that same power when he told Ahab, there will be no rain or dew for the next few years. And that's in 1 Kings 17, 1. So again, these two witnesses are going to have the power to stop rain from happening. Elijah, remember in 1 Kings 17, 1, stopped the rain. The two witnesses also are going to have the power, according to Revelation 11:6. they're going to also have the power to turn rivers and oceans into blood, okay? So not only can they stop rain, but they're also gonna be witnessing and have power to turn rivers and oceans into blood. This was also, think about this, the power Moses had. Because in Exodus 7:20, remember Moses turned the Nile and all the water in Egypt into blood. So this is interesting on how you can kind of like connect the dots that it might be, again, we don't know, but it might be Elijah and Moses. Now, others believe it's going to be Elijah and Enoch, and that's because neither of them died. Both were taken to heaven, a fiery chariot, chariot picked up Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11, and God called Enoch just to be home in Genesis 5.24. So neither of them died, and Moses did die. So that's one theory. People say, well, it couldn't be Moses because Deuteronomy 34.5, Moses died, and the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27 that it's appointed for every man to die once, and so how could Moses come back if everyone dies only one time? Elijah didn't die, Enoch didn't die. I don't know. To me, studying the Bible, my opinion logically is that it's Elijah and Enoch, but I can't tell you for certain because the Bible doesn't say. But just know there's going to be two powerful witnesses that are going to do signs and wonders. Again, because the end time people and the world are going to hate God, they're also going to hate the two witnesses. And that's because the witnesses are going to bring judgments on the earth on God's behalf. The witnesses are going to have power, again, to shut the heavens. They're going to have power to turn rivers and oceans into blood. And they're going to be the source of the world's frustration. And here's why the world's going to hate them and be so frustrated. The Bible says that the witnesses cannot be killed. Think about this. They will literally be unkillable. So imagine the armies of the world. Imagine the people in the world shooting them, hitting them with rockets, whatever technology we're going to have in the tribulation. Revelation 11.5 says, no, they're not going to be able to get harmed. Nothing can kill them. Um, I'm sorry. Revelation 11.5 says fire will come from their mouths and destroy anyone who tries to hurt them. So say a tank, an army military tank shows up as those witnesses are in the street and shoots a, a rocket at it. The witnesses are unharmed, and here's the witnesses' response. Fire is going to come out of their mouth, and the Bible says destroy anyone who tries to hurt them. That's Revelation 11.5. So understand the power that these two witnesses are going to have to preach the gospel with signs and wonders. Now, the Bible says after the witnesses complete their testimony, the Antichrist is going to kill them. And this is going to happen, the Bible talks about, in the middle of the tribulation, because the ministry of the two witnesses only lasts three and a half years, Revelation 11.3. Once the Antichrist kills the two witnesses, the Bible says their bodies will lie unburied in the main street of Jerusalem. That's Revelation 11:8. So they're going to die. The Antichrist will kill them because remember, no one else has power to kill them. Their testimony's done. Three and a half years. Their bodies are going to lie in the streets of Jerusalem. The Bible says in Revelation 11:9, the entire world is going to look at their bodies dead. The world is going to celebrate in Revelation 11:10. Give each other gifts. So think about this. 
the world hates God so much. They hate the testimony of Jesus Christ so much. They hate Christians so much that when the, the, the witnesses die, the people are going to celebrate and give each other gifts because the witnesses have died. It'll be a time of great jubilation. The people will declare a holiday because, the, think about this, the two men that tormented them will be dead. There's going to be a national holiday dedicated to the two men who have tormented the earth with judgment being dead. But here's what happens after three days of celebration. Now, they should have already known because they killed Jesus. They should have already known that after three days, nothing good could happen except for them being raised from the dead. Something unexpected happens. The Bible says that after, I get goosebumps, John. Everyone's like, I have goosebumps. I do too. The Bible says that after three days, the two men are going to rise to their feet and stand up. They're going to be dead in the street for three days. Their bodies are going to be in the road. Revelation 11, 11 says they're going to stand up and they're going to be in full view of the whole world. Now the whole world is going to see them. And in Revelation 11, 12, it says they're going to ascend into heaven. Their departure is going to bring a great earthquake. A tenth of Jerusalem will be destroyed according to Revelation 11, 13. But this is going to end the celebrations. Instead of joy, the people are going to be filled with terror. So the world's going to go from being joyous to now they're going to raise from the dead in front of the whole world. They're going to ascend into heaven. And the Bible says the whole world in Revelation 11, 13, is going to break out in terror okay and then we know there's going to be a person on the scene this is going to be this man's going to rise up so that will be the gospel explosion but now i want to talk to you about the rise of the antichrist here's what you need to understand the the spirit of the antichrist and the person of the antichrist are different things the spirit of the antichrist is already working someone said well the antichrist is already here because first john 4 2 but understand the spirit is different than the person First John 4, 2 says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God, that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. What you heard is coming and even now is in the world. So Jesus is not talking, I'm sorry, John is not talking about a literal antichrist. John is saying there's a spirit of the antichrist. Now the word antichrist, very simple, write this down, it means to go against Christ. So the spirit of the antichrist goes against the teachings and the works of Jesus. Anyone who does not acknowledge, write this down, anyone that does not acknowledge Jesus and the way the Bible represents him is working in an antichrist spirit. So if we produce a Jesus in our churches, listen to me very closely, that does not heal the sick, that does not call us to repentance, that does not ask us to lay down our lives, that does not ask us to bear our cross, that does not drive out demons even today, that does not preach a narrow road, our church is working in an antichrist spirit. And so John is saying to believers, the spirit of the antichrist is already at work, okay? So that's the spirit of the antichrist. Now, the person of the Antichrist, we don't know who they are yet. The Bible doesn't tell us who they are, but it kind of gives us some conditions. So years before the return of Christ, because remember the seven-year tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, right after Armageddon, then the Lord's going to come back. But listen to this. Years before the return of Christ, during the tribulation, a literal man is going to rise up. Now we're talking about the literal man, not the spirit. He's going to be called, he's going to be the Antichrist, and he's going to rule the entire world. Now the Bible calls him the little horn, 
in Daniel 7, 8, the fierce king in Daniel 8, 23, a master of intrigue in Daniel 8, 23, the prince of who is to come in Daniel 9, 26, the worthless shepherd in Zechariah 11, 17, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, the despicable person in Daniel 11, 21, the willful king in Daniel 11, 36, the abomination in Matthew 24, 15, and the beast. And Revelation 13, 11, this is a literal person of the Antichrist. And he's going to come, the Bible says, from among the 10 kings. Now, again, I'm trying to, I'm trying to not go too deep and too crazy because I don't want to be, you could be confused and click off here. But in Daniel 7, 7 through 8, we're, we know that the Antichrist is going to emerge from a group of 10 kings. Now, you might say, who are the 10 kings? These are the leaders of the 10 nations in the end times. I'm not going to go into the 10 nations another day, another video, but these are the leaders of the 10 nations that are going to rise up and they're going to build an alliance that will eventually become the revived Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire will be a new Roman Empire is going to come to power. The Antichrist will then come on the scene and he's going to be not one of the 10 kings, but he's going to come from among the 10 kings, okay? The Bible doesn't say why, but it says that these 10 kings are going to give the Antichrist their power that's in revelation 17 12. so you have 10 nations that are going to be revived and reformed in the end times the antichrist is going to come out of one of the 10 so that's why no one knows is he going to come from here come from here again i'm not going to go into the 10 nations but he's going to rise out of them now he's not going to be a king of one of the nations but he's going to rise out in revelation 17 12 says that the kings are going to give him power he's also going to rise in political power and three out of the 10 kings of these revived nations, I know someone said you talk too fast. It's okay. You can go rewatch it on half speed. Praise the Lord. One of these, uh, three of the, out of the 10 kings are going to actually oppose the Antichrist, the Bible says, but he's going to strip them of their power and take over their nations by force. So this is the greatest world leader. He's a one world leader. He's going to have incredible political power. He's going to be fierce. He's going to hate God and he's going to rule the nations. Now, what is he going to be like? The Bible says he's going to be strong, but not of his own power. That's in Daniel 8, 24. Where does the power of the Antichrist come from? How is he so powerful? Revelation 13, 2. His power comes from Satan. And this satanic power that he has, Satan's going to give him power. Some people actually believe Satan's going to fill the Antichrist. I lean towards that because of scriptures. But again, I'll talk about that a little bit in, in a little bit here because we're already 50 minutes in. But his satanic power is going to give him the ability to perform miracles. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10 talks about that. For example, Revelation 13, 13 says he's going to call down fire from heaven. He's going to be armed with Satan's power. The Antichrist will be the greatest warlord and general the world has ever seen. The Bible says he'll cause a shocking amount of destruction and he'll succeed in everything he does in Daniel 8, 24. He'll be so powerful. Think about this. He'll be so powerful. He'll attack heavenly beings and trample on them. That's what Daniel 8, 10 tells us. He's going to trample heavenly beings. He's even going to try to take on Jesus Christ directly in Daniel 8, 25. He's going to try to war against Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to be the ruler of the revived Roman Empire, which will be the, the, the one world order. He's going to have unprecedented power. The Bible says in Revelations 13, 7, he's going to rule every trub, tribe, every people, every language, and every nation. He's going to control the ability to buy and sell everything on earth. Revelation 13, 16. He's going to have the world thinking he's invincible. Who, and they're going to say this, who's as powerful as the Antichrist? Who can make war against the beast? That's Revelation 13, 4. So the Antichrist can be so powerful, so violent, the world's going to come against him. I mean, the world's not going to know who can beat him. He's going to be arrogant and prideful. 
The Bible says that he's going to be boasting arrogantly in Daniel 7, 8. He claims he's greater than God in Daniel 11:36, And John says he's the beast who speaks great blasphemies against God in Revelation 13, 5. When asked about the end times, Jesus said the time will come that you, the time will come when you see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place, as in Matthew 24, 16. So the Antichrist is going to fulfill the prophecy. Listen to me closely. He's going to stand in the Jewish temple and he's going to proclaim to be God. And that's in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. He's going to set up an image of the holy place and he's going to demand people to worship the image. That's in Daniel 9, 27. He's going to claim to be God and the whole world is going to worship him. Revelation 13, 4. So are you guys seeing this? This is a man that is trying to take the place of God and be God himself and rule over the entire world. The Antichrist is going to exalt himself over everything that is God and is worshiped. The Bible says that he's going to rule over the most terrible time in human history. He'll succeed in everything he does. The world will not only follow the Antichrist, but the world is going to worship the Antichrist. Now, why would the world worship the Antichrist? Because he's going to be seen as a political redeemer. Now, remember, the first century Jewish people looked at Jesus this way. They were not looking for someone to save their souls. They were looking for someone to deliver them from the cruel hand of the Roman Empire. They wanted a new Moses. And so they thought that Jesus was going to relieve them of their suffering. And the Bible says they mourned his death thinking he failed. So the reason they mourned the death of Jesus, they thought, he failed in rescuing them from the Roman Empire, but Jesus was saying, you guys don't understand. I didn't come to set you free in the natural. I, come to, I came to set you free in the spiritual. So you have to understand it was only during the resurrection they understood the purpose of Jesus' coming. He was not a worldly conqueror. Jesus could have blinked and the world could have been destroyed. He's not, he didn't come to conquer the world. The first coming, he came to be a spiritual sa savior. The second coming, he's coming to destroy and to rule every king, every tribe, and every wicked nation. That's why he came back the first time as a on a donkey. When a king would ride in a city, they would ride a donkey to declare peace. But the Bible says he's coming back on a horse because if a king rode in a city, it means they were there to declare war on the nation. That is why Jesus came as a, on a donkey the first time, and he's coming back as a war lord on a horse. Okay? The Antichrist, is he going to show up one day and take over the world? And how will we know where he's going to come from or who he's going to be? Now, we don't know, again, who he's going to be, what tribe he's going to come from, what nation he's going to come from. But we do know that he's going to perform a specific act. The Bible talks about that he's going to rise to power and he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. The treaty is going to last seven years and the signing of the peace treaty will kick off the tribulation. That's in Daniel 9.27. Now, the Bible doesn't give us any other details on the peace treaty. It doesn't even tell us why Israel signs the agreement, but they do. Are you going to be confused? If you're a believer during the tribulation or you're here and you get saved after, are you going to be confused? Absolutely not. Because once he signs the peace treaty, you're going to know that he rises in power. Now, Isaiah, is it possible that the Antichrist is alive right now? Now, it's possible. Maybe he's a kid right now. I don't know. But... It's not possible that anyone that right now is a ruler or a leader is the Antichrist. At least he hasn't been revealed. So for all of you in the chat that think the Antichrist is Bill Gates or the Pope, guys, the Antichrist is going to be a one world leader that's going to rule over the entire world that's going to sign a treaty with Israel. Now, has any of them signed a treaty with Israel? No. So biblically, we cannot say, like you guys say in the comments, that Bill Gates or the Pope or whatever, Biden or whoever you think the Antichrist is, 
Biblically, the Antichrist has not been revealed yet because remember, the Holy Spirit has to, I know you guys keep spamming the Pope this entire time. The Holy Spirit has to be removed before the Antichrist will reign to power. He's also going to change sacred laws and festivals. He's going to enter the temple and declare himself God. He's going to conquer the world. He's going to wield a mighty sword. One fourth of humanity is going to die either by the sword, famine, disease, or wild beast. He's, his global war of conquest will result in the entire worldwide famine. So this guy is, is harsh. He's a ruler. The Bible says in Revelation 6, 5, food will be so expensive, a day's wages will only buy enough food to survive. So you'll have to work a 12-hour shift just to buy food for that day to survive. So that's going to be what it's going to look like as the Antichrist rules to power. Revelation 13, 7 says the Antichrist will wage war on God's holy people. And who are God's holy people? People that believe in Jesus, people that serve God. The main target of the Antichrist is the Christian community. And in Daniel 8, 24, it talks about the persecution towards the church, towards the believers. In Revelation 13, 4, the Antichrist is going to demand worship. In Revelation 24, that's chapter 20, verse 4, he's going to behead those that don't comply. And one of his main desires and main goals is to keep people from serving Jesus and listening to the testimony of Jesus. And his ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of the Antichrist is to wage war against Jesus. Again, he's gonna be the most powerful person that's ever lived, most powerful dictator that's ever lived. Now, it's hard to believe that there's gonna be someone with this much global power, but the Bible says that it's going to happen and he's going to attack the Lord's anointed. The Bible says he's gonna gather the earth together to war against God and the Antichrist is going to fight against Jesus himself. Now, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. Now, if you ask who the Antichrist is, nobody knows, everyone for years. If you go online, people thought it was Hitler. People thought it was this. They've speculated for years and years to come. We know in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, for the Antichrist to be revealed, the Holy Spirit, the restrainer must be removed. So there has to be a removing of the Antichrist. Okay, I want to talk to you and then we're going to go into communion. One particular event that's going to happen at the end of the tribulation, that is the battle of Armageddon. And then probably next week we'll go into like eternal rewards, the thousand year reign of Christ or whatever else. But I want to talk to you quickly before we end on the battle of Armageddon. Now, most people think Armageddon because of the movies is the end of humanity, but the Bible actually talks much different about the Armageddon. It's the Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon is not a battle between people and it's not the end of the human race. It's actually a place where all the world's armies are going to gather for a global war. Armageddon is literally the place that's going to host the most intense battle the world has ever seen. And um, this is where the armies are going to gather, gather at Armageddon. The armies are going to gather to war against the Lord. So at the end of the tribulation, okay, we're at the end of the tribulation. All the armies of the world are going to gather to Armageddon in preparation for war. That's Revelation 16, 16 and Revelation 19, 19. And they're going to come under one direction of the Antichrist and the false prophet, which the false prophet is a different person. We'll talk about that on a later day because there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the false prophet. Basically, the false prophet is an aid to the Antichrist to get the world to serve and worship the Antichrist, okay? Revelation 16, 13 through 16 talks about it. The Euphrates River is going to dry up to pave the way for the armies of the kings of the east. And there's going to be a war that takes place here. When all the armies arrive, the Antichrist is going to set up camp between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, Daniel eleven thirty five. And he's going to, by, by this time, the Antichrist is going to rule the entire globe. And the world is going to ask itself, 
Who can come against him? He is going to be so powerful, so just every in every way strong. You got to realize the power he's going to have. The world is going to see God unlocking seals, angels preaching, the two witnesses raising from the dead, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and the world is going to look at the Antichrist after all the stuff God does, and the world's going to say, in Revelation 13, 14, 4, 13, 4, who can fight against the Antichrist? So this is how powerful he's going to be globally. He's going to be enormously powerful. So um, no, it makes no sense. Think about this. For all the armies to gather and fight each other because they know they're going to lose to the Antichrist. So instead, they join together to battle against the Lord, against Jesus. That's Revelation 17, 14. Now look what it says in Revelations 16, 14. These miracle-working demons caused all the rulers of the world to gather for battle against the Lord on that great judgment day of God Almighty. So there's going to be a great judgment day of the Lord Almighty where the miracle-working demons who caused the rulers of the world to gather. So it's going to be a demonic strategy. And somehow the Antichrist is going to convince the world, all the armies, all the kings, all the rulers, all the ten kingdoms, which will now be at seven at this time because he's going to rule three of them, He's going to convince everybody, let's fight against the Lord. Revelation 19, 19. Then I saw the beast gathering the kings of the world and their armies in order to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. So now the Antichrist, John says, is gathering his army. But he says, I see another army and there's a man sitting on a horse and his army. And there's going to be a battle. It's going to take place at Armageddon. That's why many people call it the battle of Armageddon. They're preparing for war. But again, the armies are not preparing to fight each other. This is going to be a global war against Jesus, the one that sits on the white horse. Okay? This is Jesus sitting on the white horse. What do these armies hope to achieve? Remember, power. The Antichrist gets his power from Satan. Many people believe, and this is what I believe, that Satan is going to indwell the Antichrist just like he did Judas in Luke 23.3. And if Satan controls the Antichrist... We know what Satan's motive is because we just talked about it three weeks ago. His motive is to get the world to worship him. And we know his motive, according to Isaiah 14, the devil's motive is to ascend to heaven and to set his throne above God's stars, to climb to the highest of heavens and to be like the most high God. Think about this. Isaiah 14, 13, the devil's goal is to ascend to the heavens above the throne of God, to climb to the highest part of heaven and to be like the most high God. Thousands of years have passed. We're in the tribulation. Satan infills the Antichrist. And what is Satan's goal in overcoming the Antichrist? What is Satan's goal? I'm sorry. What is Satan's goal in filling the Antichrist and then fighting the Lord, the one that sits on the white horse? His goal is if I can overthrow the rider of the white horse and defeat God once and for all, because remember in Revelation 12, the dragon got hurled down to earth because Michael and the angels fought him. This is another time where Satan's going to go directly against God. Then what could happen if I could defeat the rider of the white horse? I could take his throne. I could take Jesus's throne and ascend above God if I can defeat Jesus. How am I going to defeat Jesus? I'm going to gather every political power, every ruler, every tank, every nuclear weapon. The armies will gather at Armageddon to take on the Lord. And I laugh when I say this because how many people know the devil underestimated Jesus on the cross and he's underestimating Jesus once again because if the Antichrist and Satan think that they're going to overthrow Jesus, they have another thing coming because the Bible says that his mere breath is going to defeat him. Think about this. The Antichrist... 
The Antichrist gathers all of the world. And here's what 2 Thessalonians 2 7 says. Oh, I'm sorry, not 2 Thessalonians 2 7. Here's where 2 Thessalonians 2 8 says The Lord Jesus is going to slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. Think about that. The Antichrist gathers all of the armies, and Jesus goes, You're pathetic. And the breath of his mouth defeats the Antichrist and all the armies. Now, the Bible says out of the breath of God's nostrils, the Red Sea was opened. So Moses is like, what are we going to do? The the ocean, we can't cross. And God goes, hmm. And God breathes out of his nostrils. And the Bible says by the breath of his nostrils, the Red Sea was opened up. So you got to understand how powerful your God is. Now think about this. The rulers of the world and the Antichrist gather to defeat Jesus. Jesus breathes and defeat them. And y'all are sitting here going, I don't think God can restore my marriage. I don't think God can save me tonight. I don't think God can restore me tonight. I don't think God can heal me of cancer. I don't think God can wash me. And God says, I breathe and the armies of the world and the Antichrist are defeated. You better believe that Jesus has power to overcome whatever you are going through, okay? Revelation 17, 14. I'm sorry, I just get fired up when I look at how the devil just always flexing. He's always losing. The armies of the world gather to wage war against Jesus. Um, the Bible says in Revelation 19, 19, then I saw the beast gathering the kings of the world to fight against the one that sits on the white horse and the world armies gather and you have to understand they're planning to attack. Now, here's the question I've asked. Why does the world want to defeat Jesus? Okay, because we already know why does the Antichrist want to defeat him? Because he wants to be worshipped. He wants to ascend above the heavens because Satan wants to, to win. But what? how does the Antichrist convince the world to fight against God? Why, what does the world have to gain in defeating God? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly, but I believe it's the same reason why the world fights against him today, because people want to do their own thing. They don't want God in their way. And the world thinks this, if we can defeat God once and for all, then we can do whatever we want. There's no moral restraint. We can do whatever we want to do. Because remember, the Bible says the whole world loves darkness and hates the light. Another reason why is because Jesus Christ is the source of the tribulation judgments. So number one, they say, we want to defeat him because we don't want him to rule over us. So the one that rides on the white horse, we're going to gather with the Antichrist at Armageddon to overthrow the one on the white horse. And by default, our reward is we don't have to live with a standard. Now, some of you are in this broadcast and you're living the same way. You don't want to have to live the standard that Jesus has written. So you fight against God and you say, how could the Antichrist want to fight Jesus? How could the world want to fight Jesus? Why do you fight Jesus? Why are you always resisting? Why are you always fighting? Why is it every time God begins to move in your life, you resist the move of God? Every time God wants to move in your church, pastor, you resist the move of God. Every time God wants to use you to do miracles and deliverances, you fight against God. Every time the voice tells you to get in a prayer, the voice tells you to get in the word, the voice tells you to get serious about God, you resist God. And so don't get all confused saying, why would the Antichrist want to fight God in the world? They want to do it so that they can live for themselves and they're trying to get payback on the seven years of wrath, the seven years of destruction. And because God was the one that caused the judgment, And so they're going to hate him. Now, remember, when the two witnesses die, the Bible says there will be a holiday celebrating their death. People will give each other gifts. Think about that. Because they hated the two witnesses so much. How much more do you think they're going to hate the God of the witnesses? How much more do you think they're going to hate the God of the witnesses? If you are a believer in the tribulation, 
You are going to be hated like the world has never seen before because the hatred that the people are going to have to God, they're going to turn towards you. Now, the reason why we're hated even to this day, why we're bigots, why people say, you know, you're a bigot, you're this, you're that, is because the world hates God. And the only way they can take their hate out on God is by taking it out on the people that represent God. So don't be confused. Like, why do my unsafe friends hate me now? Because they hate God. The spirit of the Antichrist is working even now. They hate the God on the inside of you. So they're mean to you because they're trying to take out their hatred towards God because the spirit on the inside of them is anti the spirit on the inside of you. So they take out their anger and their frustration on you because they want to destroy the image of God in you. This is going to be times a thousand during the Antichrist. This is going to be hatred like never before. But thank God that the Lord is going to defeat the Antichrist. Come on, can I get an amen in the chat? That there will be a gospel explosion, miracles, signs, and wonders like the world has never seen before. And the true believers are going to rise up because Jesus is going to defeat the enemy once again. The devil is going to be defeated. He's going to be chained up for a thousand years. And there's going to be a thousand year reign, which maybe we'll talk about next week and some other things, because I can't break all this down in one week. I went an hour and 10 minutes. I still have a lot more to say, but understand he's going to chain up the devil for a thousand years after defeating him. And then he's going to release him once again to come back and to tempt the world and we will reign on the earth in the great in the millennial reign the thousand year reign with christ on the earth before the new jerusalem and before the new earth comes there's going to be a thousand year reign and what better time what better time for us tonight to take communion to remember that christ has delivered the children of israel has delivered us at the cross oh come on holy ghost i feel the fire and god is going to deliver us once again so this is a great segue into communion we're going to do communion tonight. And if you're wondering, you're new. I know a lot of you, if you're new, if you've never done communion, I want you to go ahead right now and just type one in the chat. Let me put the chat on screen here. If you've never done communion, I want you to type one in the chat. Communion is a symbolic way, basically just to show the world and to show people that we belong to Jesus. This is us showing we belong, we're a part of Jesus, and it's a great reminder because we live in a world that is so forgetful. Look at all these ones, guys. It's freezing my thing, so many ones. So many people getting saved, never done communion. Okay, so let me explain this. This is a reminder of what, a reminder to us of what Jesus did on the cross because we are so forgetful. This is a great way for us to continue to remind ourselves, okay? The breaking and the eating of the bread has to do with Christ's body being broken on the cross. The drinking from the cup has to do with Christ's um, blood shed on the cross. So that is why I have, if you're new, I know, look at, there's so many ones, guys, literally hundreds of ones. I have a cracker here that represents the body. So you can just grab my autofocus and get on me. You can just grab a cracker or you could grab a piece of bread. I have some grape juice here. Whatever juice that you can have, whatever you can find, you can use. If you don't have juice, it is okay to use water. It's symbolic. You're not gonna, it's not gonna not count if you use water, okay? If you need to, this is all symbolic. But again, it's I, I use grape juice, but you can use whatever you have available. This is a symbolic way of the shedding blood and reminding what Jesus did on the cross. Now, communion was originally celebrated by God's people as the promise of his protection during the Passover and Exodus 12. But when Jesus came, he redefined the, Passover, the celebration of the Passover. And the Bible says him and his disciples sat in Luke 22, 19. The Bible says he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, the Bible says he took the cup, saying, this is my new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So in Luke 22, 19, Jesus is redefining Passover. He's redefining communion and he's showing the disciples, this is the new way we're going to take communion. Now, something that is very important for us to do, I apologize, my voice is gone. When it comes to taking communion is to examine ourselves. Many people don't do this. You need to examine yourself because 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty against sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And this is what what Paul says. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. So very simply, don't take it lightly. This is what Paul is saying. He's not saying if there's sin, if you're unperfect and you can't. This is what Paul is saying. Do not take it lightly. Examine your motives. Examine yourself. I would challenge you if there's any unrepentant sin, this is a great time to repent. A great time to say, Lord, I repent. I want you to examine me. But basically what Paul is saying is don't take it lightly. Don't take it like a joke. Don't think it's no big deal. Don't just eat it like it's a snack. Paul says you need to examine yourself, okay? So let's say a quick prayer. I like to do this before communion of repentance and just ask the Lord to examine us, ask the Lord to wash us, ask the Lord to renew us. Father, we just pray right now in Jesus' name that you would wash us with your blood, that you would restore us, God, that we would right now, we would examine ourselves in Jesus' name. God, if there's any area of our life that we don't have together, Father, search our heart. If there's any unrepented sin, Father, we pray, search our heart. Tonight, God, we take it serious. We know what you did on the cross was serious, and we don't take it lightly. And Father, we just pray right now in Jesus' name that there would be an examination process and that we would honor you, that we would respect you, and that this would be a time of reverence, God, that we reverence you tonight, God. We reverence you, your spirit, your power, and what you did on the cross, okay? So right now we're examining. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have your bread. So everyone grab their bread now. I know people are saying, wait, I'll give you like 10 more seconds here. Again, I just have a cracker. If you can see, I just have a cracker. If you have bread, I know some of you are saying, I'm running to my kitchen to get bread or to get a cracker or to get something, um, Ritz cracker, anything. You just need to get something as a, as a symbolism, okay? So we're gonna take our bread first. For all of you new people, I know there's several hundred of you that have never taken communion. This is a beautiful thing. Take our bread and we're not gonna eat it yet, but here we go. I wanna read you, I wanna read you 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I, for I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, okay? So we're gonna take this, and this is gonna be in remembrance to what Jesus did, his body was broken, and you can now eat the bread. Okay, so that was the body. Now that we've taken the bread, again, we're not taking this lightly. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. In the same way, okay, we're going to take our cup. Everyone grab their cup. He took the cup also after the supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So now this represents the blood of Jesus, the blood that was shed, that was poured out, that was to forgive us of our sin. The same way they put the blood over the doorpost in the Passover, this is now the blood where death has no sting, hell has no power. We can now drink our blood in remembrance of him. I said drink our blood, I meant drink our juice, but it is representative of the blood. Okay, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to say that again. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, so as often as you do it, as often as you want, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we just did is we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's just pray a prayer. I like to end with a prayer of thanksgiving. Father, we thank you for what you did on the cross. Lord, if it wasn't for what you did on the cross, we would not be able to stand here justified to boldly come before your throne of grace. So Father, right now, we thank you. God, I just want to personally thank you for delivering me. I want to thank you for saving me. I want to thank you for giving me a family. I want to thank you for giving me a wife. I want to thank you for giving me beautiful, healthy children. God, I want to thank you for my salvation. Lord, that you didn't have to encounter me. You didn't have to deliver me and you didn't have to save me, but I'm so grateful, Lord, that you did. And God, I recognize that it was by the shed blood of Jesus. Come on, in your own words, thank him for whatever he's done for you. It was by the shed blood of Jesus that I'm able now, according to your word, to come before the throne of grace with boldness. God, we thank you, the price that you paid. Father, we thank you that you sent your only son. We just thank you, Jesus, for what you did. We don't take it lightly. And Father, I pray that there would not be a day that goes by where I don't recognize the price you paid on the cross. Lord, we are not ignorant of what you did on the cross. Lord, we don't take it lightly, but we enter your gates. We enter your courts with thanksgiving and praise. And we thank you, Jesus. Come on, everybody in the chat. We thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. That death has lost its power and it's lost its sting in Jesus' name. We do this in remembrance of you and we thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content and please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.